Sunday, and happy Sunday for all of us here as we celebrate God's sovereignty. Uh, one of the point out, because everyone's asked me thus far, this is due to cutting open flowers. I grabbed for a flower. It was a knife. Thanks to Gene, wherever he is today, for just bandaging this up. If I pass out, Mike has a sermon ready for the Antichrist for you, okay? He told me before, so you're set. Um, now, some of you are... Yeah, some of you are praying for you me to pass out now. No, in all seriousness, I'm fine. Uh, just bled a lot and looked gross. We're gonna get into Ruth and God's sovereignty this morning with that in mind and excited to jump into chapters two and three. Really quickly, we've been going through the book of Ruth. Chapter one was about Ruth and Naomi coming together and saying, I'm committing to one another. We're going to a foreign land, which is actually Naomi's homeland, Israel. And they're going there and finding out that they are both poverty-stricken, they're unemployed, and they're finding a new identity. So thankful, so thankful for our panelists last week, eloquently and beautifully describing how to find who I am and what that identity means in refinding identities. And hope if you didn't see it, to go back and watch it. A tremendous panel last week. Now this week, I heard an amen for that. Whoever said that? Well, well well-timed amen, sneaking that in there. This week, we're going to get into a very apropos, apropos subject as we celebrate this Sunday in particular, and that is, friends, scheming (laughs) mother-in-laws. So with that in mind, a little connect question for us this morning. Find someone maybe you've not met before and share, did your mother-in-law scheme either the lunch or the dinner you have this afternoon? Go ahead and meet. Just kidding. It's a trap. It's a trap, okay? Don't share that with anyone. Don't share that with anyone. For real, though, find someone you've not met before. In a fictional book you're going to write, what's the name of the mother-in-law character in that book? Find someone you've not met before. Greet them and say, welcome to E3. Find someone you've not met before. Share the name of a fictional mother-in-law of a book you're going to write. Go ahead. All right. In the chat, hope you're chatting in those names of those mother-in-law figures. Any, any good ones that somebody shared, that somebody got shared with? Who's that? Jezebel. Jezebel. My goodness. My goodness. Thanks for coming. We're going to just end the service with that. Any others? Any other good ones? Cruella. Ooh. Who else? Mama Mia. Mama Mia. My, my. In Ruth, we're going to see that this mother-in-law character is not a horrible person that some of your names maybe insinuate. In fact, she is a pivotal person, really a heroine of the book, as her schemes seem to drive the book forward in chapters 2 and chapters 3. In the Bible, we'll find that there's lots of different literary tools for the ancient reader and the modern one as well. Remember, the ancient readers heard this mostly. They didn't have your NIV study Bible to read from. They, they had tablets, you know, and then they had scrolls to listen to and, and, and read from, but they would hear this, and so they'd use these terms and these different phrases as patterns so it'd be easier for them to memorize. Yes, they memorized their Bible. That should make you feel guilty. So they use these terms of repetition, patterns, and always using symmetry in their writing to help the memorization go better. And so you hear phrases like you have heard it said, if you have ears, I am, fill in the blank. Here is a trustworthy saying. Those four statements come from four very vastly different books of the Bible, but those who know your scripture remember those books because of the pattern of the phrases. And in Ruth 2 and 3, we see that same idea. See, 
it starts out with a slide progression. And remember that these two women are poverty-stricken. They have no jobs. They have no future. They are really just together in this foreign land. And so we see two and three really build upon that idea that there's a fact in chapter two that's needing to glean. She's a relative to Boaz. In chapter three, it's they're needing to find a new home, a new place to live, and a place where they can actually have actual consistent food. Then there's a situation, secondly, related to that. In chapter two, it's they're gleaning. They're, they're going through the leftovers of the field, which is an Old Testament idea to come and take the, just the pieces of food that were left behind from the actual harvesters. Glamorous work, glamorous job. In chapter three, it's Boaz who's going to be winnowing on the threshing floor. Then we get into the scheming, the best part of that chapter two and three. We see that Naomi tells Ruth in chapter two to go and glean, and in chapter three that we just heard read, to go and lay by his feet in chapter, and then after that we see the scheme is run. Ruth does both these schemes that Naomi suggests. She goes willingly and does these things without really even bringing up any objections we see from the scripture. And because of these, we see a change in the paradigm, a change in how things work from Boaz's perspective. In chapter two, he notices her winnowing. Uh, sorry, gleaning, not winnowing, gleaning. And in chapter three, he notices that a strange woman is laying at his feet. <laughs> you can joke all you want. It's, it's, it's a surprise, right? Boaz then blesses Ruth in both books by giving both chapters and giving out food to her and then her coming back and reporting back to Naomi what has occurred. We see that this pattern happens in chapter two and chapter three, and it's significant. We see in chapter two, there's 23 verses. In chapter three, there's 18. And they follow almost the exact same scripture, same, same script. As Pastor Mike said three years, weeks ago, this is a book on how the actions of ordinary moments can contribute to the overall narrative of one's individual story. But it's also a story that's embedded in it is a story of salvation. But my question is, in both of these chapters, where's God? God, for face value, appears to be silent. There's a whole theological study that speaks of this sovereignty of God. Sovereignty is a Christian word, saying that generally that the workings of God are seen in and through my lives, but from an elevated perspective. Do you see the sovereignty of God years later, maybe perhaps, or even in the midst of something, but this idea that God rules over all and controls all the things that are happening for God's good. It's a very comforting theological idea. It is not chance that all these things happened. For God foreknew carefully and orchestrated, we see Ruth and Naomi, and yet, Ruth and Naomi still plot and plan. They just don't sit there and do nothing. It seems to be important recorded, and yet God is not mentioned in these schemings. God doesn't bless the scheming, the ideas. We even see that they do not even pray or even mention God in the dialogue between these two women. Verse 16, when Ruth came home to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is said today. God's not in this text. But interestingly enough, many theologians believe that God's sovereignty is working behind the scenes in these two chapters. And they attribute Ruth to some sort of amazing book on how God did all of this. And Ruth and Naomi are merely pawns in God's game. Not very comforting, is it? 
Meanwhile, on the other side of the, the, the field, on the other side of the spectrum, we see that there's comments by different Bible scholars saying that Ruth and Naomi, in their poverty, they pulled themselves up, they went and found a job, they gleaned on the, the floors of these farmers, and then they schemed and they got into some sort of relationship with Boaz so they could have a job, and they are the American dream. Also, a little theologically bereft. Let me be clear. Both can be true, but also can be horrifically wrong theologically. And both ways of looking at God's sovereignty have huge implications in our lives. For example, I would venture that, venture that more than three-fourths of us here, just throwing out a statistic, just for fun, three-fourths of us here believe that God at some point has entered, entered into my life providentially. That God has done something for me, and I've attributed some event in my life to God. Without necessarily God coming down and telling me that I did this. It's out of faith. That's not bad. But what if it's just chance and we attribute something wrong to God? Is there a consequence in how we represent God to others in our lives based on these kind of phrases we just throw out there? But what about those who do not acknowledge even a God? The Moabite refugees among us who maybe just worship, recently worshiped maybe a foreign God even. Does God not use all people? Or is God only using the Christians among us? The idea of asking these questions can be a little bit troubling and be a little bit challenging. And buckle in, friends, it's only going to get worse from here. Does the size of the change in our lives mean that it's somehow godly or is it something insignificant that can be God-ordained? Do I have to go and save a pastor from bleeding to death in the lobby? Just throwing that out there as some sort of God-ordained miracle? Or is it that when I go to the cupboard and I think I'm out of Cinnamon Toast Crunch and behold, there is a Cinnamon Toast Crunch that God is in control? Some of you saying amen to that. We see that there's an idea and a very much a measuring line that we put in front of us of saying where God is working and times where God is just, uh, okay, whatever, I just want the Cinnamon Toast Crunch. But on a whole, we flippantly float platitudes about God's sovereignty too often. This morning, I want to pack these two with an idea of two truths and a lie. We know this game. Where you say things that may be a truth or may be a lie, and you have to guess which one it is. And we're going to get a little background from chapters 2 and 3 in Ruth. So with that setting in mind, where these two women are working behind the scenes, scheming, trying to make things work in their own lives, and where is God in that? I'm going to throw out some statements, and I want you to cheer loudly if it's your truth, and I want you to boo and hiss if it's a lie. Now, the first two are going to be super easy, and I hope you get these right, but if you hear someone boo who hates giraffes, because they're a monster, don't judge them. They can just hate giraffes. Maybe they have some sort of trauma with giraffes, okay? If you hear somebody cheer because they love eating I don't know where I came up with these. Eating, having toothpaste and then drinking a glass of orange juice. If they cheer, we still love them, okay? They're, they've chosen to worship with us, okay? So let's try it here, okay? That was very good, by the way, okay? <laughs> Truth and a lie. Lie, moan, cheer, clap. First one, eating toothpaste and drinking orange juice is awesome. God bless you. You wear your own target, sir. <laughs> and protect you for it. <laughs> Secondly, I love giraffes. Yay. See, that's pretty good. 
it's gonna get harder. It's gonna get really hard. Because some of these we don't ever consider or even think about because they're so abstract or we just think, that, oh, God's got it. I don't need to worry about that stuff. And that's just the way I represent God in my general everyday life. Then, Well, it doesn't really matter. It does, it does, it does. Here we go. First one, God knows all. Truth or a lie? Good job, good job. Some of you are just moaning incoherently, hoping you're just gonna not be called out by the pastor. God stands outside of space and time. And it is impossible to have God's viewpoint, but throughout scripture and throughout theology, God is sovereign over all of creation and could do whatever God pleases. To limit God's power is not only unbiblical, it is heretical. God knows all of Ruth and Naomi and each and every one of us and even the number of hairs on our head, even if they're zero, the number of hairs on my head from the beginning of time. Second one, God gives us free will, truth or lie. Yeah, but you just, you just argued with yourself. Because if I have free will, how does God know it? Right? How, how, it's paradoxical, but it's true that I have the free will of having cinnamon toast crunch or fruit loops, and those, those decisions matter. But God allows each of us to have the ability to do whatever we want to do, and somehow God, in the divine mystery of the cosmos, knows each and every option that we can have. It's not like ChatGTP, and if you don't know what that is, don't worry about this illustration. ChatGTP, where you type in a query, and all of a sudden, it pops out an answer. No, we are not computers, friends. We control our lives, and somehow God knows each and every choice and is sovereign over all. God does not make us do anything, but it certainly helps us in the decision-making by the power of the Spirit. Some of the choices we make are small potatoes. But choosing potatoes over tricks for breakfast makes a small difference that can make a huge difference. You know the times and the events that lead up to those cataclysmic events in your life where you say, I do, to maybe a complete stranger, where you behold the birth of a child, where you say yes to the power of God, to the sacrament and the work of baptism, isn't just one isolated event. It comes on the heels of so many little things that you choose in your life. And yes, what I'm talking about is this idea of a butterfly effect. Where if a butterfly flaps its wings, it creates a hurricane on the other side of the globe. I don't know. But I know the small choices I make have huge implications down the road. Don't think that what you do in coming here, even on a Sunday, doesn't matter. In the eternity of salvation, it can. It can Next one, God uses Ruth's suffering at the end for a higher purpose, which gives her grief meaning. Truth or a lie? <laughs> I love it, I love it. We had several people who were going, uh, and several people who were clapping. I've told you, these are gonna be hard. These are the kind of statements we can say could be true but too often are the platitudes we use to try and comfort someone when we feel uncomfortable. Amen? Statements like, God needed another angel. There's the groan I was waiting for. Yeah. God uses all things for good. God won't give you more than you can't bear. Thank you. Very good. Could God and God's sovereignty use someone else other than Ruth? Yes, absolutely. God has the ability to do that. And yet God is so far beyond us in every way, we can't fathom God's ways. To use the fact that Ruth lost her husband 
became hungry and poor and lost all of her identity of who she was doesn't make any sort of godly sense that God would want to use our suffering for somehow better good. No, in fact, God, I believe, wants to make all of our lives pain-free, but it doesn't come through faith and through actions that we do that seem to somehow manipulate God in some sort of candy machine way that I need a new car, so B14, I gotta pray about that, and all of a sudden it pops out a car. No, God doesn't work that way. There are ways in which God works that are far beyond our vision and wisdom, but to say that someone's suffering is for God's good is one of those that I push back on and say, that's a lie. Ruth and Naomi's plotting is godly. Next one. Again, we don't know. We don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bad question. If God is all-knowing and all-powerful, and if we have free will, sometimes our schemes and plans can be used by God. And sometimes they are pointless and fruitless ventures into the unknown. And there are times we have to acknowledge and cannot see how and why and where God is doing. But we step forward in faith regardless because, again, our choices do matter. Next one. God wants to bless Ruth and Naomi. You're so gun shy now. Let's try this again. God wants to bless Ruth and Naomi. Yes, yes. I I do believe that's a truth. However, our culture has so manipulated, manipulated the word of blessing that we have to just take a second and think about it before we just start cheering wildly. A blessing is a spiritual experience. A blessing is not a financial windfall. Let me say it again. A blessing is a spiritual experience, not a financial windfall. I shared this insight with my last church and the board there just went crazy. You can't say that blessings aren't financial windfalls. They can be. Yes, they can. But that's a financial windfall. Use that term. You don't use a spiritual term to, to, to describe a financial situation that you may be having. God cares more about your soul than he does about your pocketbook. Amen? Amen. But it's hard to actually believe that, isn't it? It's hard to actually move forward in that faith that God cares about me and my soul and my eternity more than God cares about the amount of money that I'm somehow worth or the clothes that I have or the car that I drive or any sort of outside cultural thing that culture says is more important. Because, friends, I know you leave here or even right now, you're looking at an Amazon ad. I love you all. It's uncomfortable, but it's okay. Some of you are looking at your phones. I'm on my Bible app, Pastor. You're looking at Amazon. I know it's okay. It's okay. Just call it out. Culture says you're a number. Culture says you're stuff. God says you are mine. And I want to make you mine forever. So if God cares about our soul and God wants to bless Ruth and Naomi, it's just a matter of circumstance that they get barley and grains and all sorts of cool stuff to eat where they had nothing. It's about having their whole selves reunited with God for eternity. Ruth and Naomi are blessed by generational faithfulness and also overjoyed by the temporary reprieve of poverty. Next week, we'll be talking with Pastor Mike about that generational faithfulness that'll be coming through. Ruth and Naomi are key in relationships that God wants that relationship with them. And it's fascinating that to say that God controls everything and those that have free will, both have a weak theology of the work of the Holy Spirit. 
That Holy Spirit, friends, is about relationship. The Spirit can move in the believer and the non, can do miracles and divine appointments to speak through words that a person literally make God talk. And God wants that relationship with us, the divine sovereignty that you can take to the bank. And the same, the relationship between two women is key in this book. Key in redefining who they are and key in what their blessing will become. We talked about that last week with Caitlin and Rory. Last one, God's sovereignty is only seen in looking back. Yeah, you're just tired. You're like, let me out of here. I have lunch appointment. It's okay. That's a lie. Many of us are living out God's sovereignty in our lives right now. Some of us need time to understand where it is. And yearly holidays like Mother's Day provide a backdrop of comparison from one year to the next. And some of us here on this Mother's Day are mourning because this is that holiday. And I see you and I hear you and I understand. But some of us are here celebrating because it's Mother's Day. Looking upon different holidays from year to year are a wonderful way of marking the passage of time. And we take that seriously, that these holidays are key. But don't let one day, one year, a decade, or even a century change or transform your view of who the divine, consistent God is moment by moment in all our years. See, these are the kind of things that I want to guard us against because too often we do flippantly float platitudes about God's sovereignty too often. But what we need to become are people who are the evidence of God's sovereignty. People who are the evidence of God's sovereignty. Like Ruth. Who are you engaging with God's love? God's grace. God's covenantal love of Jesus Christ. Who are you a mother figure to? Who have you blessed to be mothering even if it isn't a biological mother? These are the kind of questions we need to ask when we talk about God's sovereignty of bringing upon the rule of God into our very lives. The real presence of God, both small and extremely powerful actions of peace, hope, and love. As we as a church continue to rekindle relationship, both of new folk and those of relationships past, I want to challenge us to be a spiritual family and to engage our city in service where we are providers of that sovereignty. But instead of saying platitudes, we commit to being commissioned this morning by communion, to be a symbol as an eternity changer. That because of the act we're about to do, we say, I'm a part of this family, that I will be the bringer of God's rule in every aspect and every facet of my own life. Will that be a lie or a truth? While God has never fully mentioned these chapters, Naomi's scheming and Ruth's actions acknowledge that they have an opportunity to change their lives and those lives around them. They bring honor to God in being markers to the people of Israel, to Christians today, as living in a world in limitations in the horrific cultural systems of bleeding fields, to being providers of God's sovereignty. Their actions echo into King David and through so many generations, even in Jesus himself. And we have to take that seriously as we embark upon this act we're about to take. See, Jesus took this idea of God's sovereignty to a whole new level through the work of communion. 
It's no longer a sacrificial system. It's no longer a system of if I do X, then I get Y. No, it says that I am a part of the whole of God and actually ingesting God inside me. Here at E3, we don't believe we literally take the body and blood of Jesus, but there's symbols and there's a mysterious component where the spirit comes about right here. I'm, not, I'm joking, but I'm not. That it's more than just eating bread and juice. That this is a act of me saying, I commit myself to the sovereignty of God and to be a citizen of not just heaven, but an agent of heaven here on earth. Some rules for clarification, we use gluten-free bread, and all are welcome at this table, regardless if you are a owner or a member of this church or of any church. We open this table to all and ask that you would take this seriously in asking Jesus into your life before you take the elements. In a moment, I'll pray over the elements and open the table. I'd invite you to come up, grab one cup bread and one juice, and then stay at your seat, and we'll take them together at the end of the service. We have stations here, here, two up here, and one in the back if you're needing to stop and get uh, those. And we'll also invite our worship team to take with us at the end of the service. With that, let's pray over the elements and we'll continue in our worship. Father, I thank you for the gift you give through the sacrament and the act of communion. May these elements be blessed to be more than just a common occurrence, a monthly ritual, but instead to represent you coming inside of us and commissioning us to be agents of your kingdom. God, I pray for all who would take it. They'd take seriously what you did so many years ago on the night in which you were betrayed. Took bread saying it was your body, juice, it was your blood, and commissioned your initial 12 and all of us here to be agents of that same mission to bring your sovereignty. May your blessing reside upon these elements and upon all the hands which take them. We ask together saying, amen. Come, the table is open.